they throw a different set of parameters or a different set of problems to solve at you all the time. So you can't be the same photographer tomorrow that you were today. You have to adapt. It teaches you versatility and kind of a durability. Once you take a job, once you say yes, then it's incumbent on you to figure that job out. Welcome to season six of the Viewfinders Photography Podcast, where we discuss the art, craft, and profession of photography with some of the best photographers from around the world. This week's guest is the one and only Joe McNally. So excited. And me, I'm your host, Graham Targi. I'm a professional photographer based in Aberdeen, Scotland. Well, super excited to welcome you back for another new batch of episodes. If you're a new listener today, very special welcome to you. Really appreciate you taking the time to check out the show. Hope the sun's shining wherever you are. Well, this is my first new episode for a wee while, but it's just been so busy lately between work and family stuff. Our daughter just turned seven, so lots of excitement, lots of memories made, lots of sugar consumed. Photography-wise, a solid start to the year. I've been out to a few offices, workshops. I was even on a farm the other day photographing a guy with some cows. But yeah, mainly corporate photography, so busy, but not complaining at all. How about you? How's your photography going? I'd love to see what you're getting up to. So connect with me on Instagram at Viewfinders Podcast and check out the website viewfinderslive.com where you can find 50 previous episodes with incredible guests like George Steinmetz, Christina Mittermeier, Gregory Heisler, Jim Richardson, Valda Bailey, Marcel Van Austin, dozens more leading photographers from around the world. Whatever you're into, there's an episode for you. While you're there, you can find out about upcoming Viewfinders Live events, visit the brand new Viewfinders bookshop, and if you're feeling a bit stuck with your photography, you could even book a one-to-one coaching session with me. I'd love to help you move towards your potential as a photographer. Finally, if you've been loving the podcast, you know what to do. Subscribe or follow on your favorite platform and drop us a five-star review. It really, really helps. Okay, on with the show. Today, my guest is the one and only Joe McNally. There's really nobody else in the world of photography quite like Joe. A self-confessed generalist, long-time documentary photographer and teacher to millions of photographers worldwide and just a bang-up nice bloke. When I started the podcast, I made a list of dream guests. Joe McNally was right on top of that list. Joe is, without a doubt, the photographer who's had the most influence on my work. If you looked at my work, it doesn't really look like Joe's, but when I got hold of lighting through Joe's Speedlight tutorials, maybe a dozen or so years ago, it set my photography on a whole new trajectory and transformed the kind of images I was able to create. Truly, if there was no Joe, there'd be no me. So for me, this interview was a big one. Joe's work is so diverse, and although he's well known as a Nikon ambassador and for teaching workshops all over the world, he's had a huge career as a photojournalist, having shot 15 stories for National Geographic, including five cover stories, seven covers for Life magazine, four Olympic Games, and with other clients including ABC Television, Sports Illustrated, and Time magazine. His portrait of Gail Devers won a World Press Photo Award in 1997. 
His photo from the top of the world's tallest building, the Burj Khalifa, went viral a few years ago and his project, Faces of Ground Zero, has helped to raise over $2 million for the 9-11 relief effort. Because Joe has accomplished so much, I could have gone at this interview a number of different ways. Like I said, I'm a fanboy, but in the end, I just didn't see the point of me sitting here for an hour fawning over his best photos. That didn't feel like a good use of my time, his time or your time. So I decided to relate to Joe as an assignment photographer, taking cues from his latest book, The Real Deal, and touching on some of the most challenging projects he's taken on in his career. As photographers, we know we're not curing cancer here, but we put something of ourselves into every project and we always want to do our best and not let people down who are relying on us. We all experience anxiety and failure in this job, probably like any other job, but when you're on your own and everyone else seems to be doing well, it can feel really isolating. For me to say, well, ups and downs are normal, that might mean something to somebody, but to hear that Joe McNally goes through that too, well, that normalizes it and helps me and hopefully you to realize that we're not alone and that these things are just stepping stones on the path of success. So it was my one chance to interview a hero, someone I've been interviewing in my head for years, and I decided to give him a little bit of a hard time. But hopefully me and Joe can still be friends. All right, here goes. I hope you take something away from this. Here's my conversation with the real deal, Joe McNally. Joe McNally, welcome to the Viewfinders Photography Podcast. How are you? Doing fine. How are you doing, Graham? I'm doing good, thanks. I'm so excited. I won't lie, I'm a Joe McNally fan. I'm one of those people. And uh, I followed your work for a long time. And like so many of us, you know, learned so much through your videos and DVDs and books and been to a couple of events with you. And uh, so to have this hour with you, I'm just super, super grateful. Um, I've been reading your book, um, The Real Deal, and I'm, I love it. I've been loving, I've read about 140 pages and hopefully by the time the podcast comes out, I'll have read the whole thing. But um, I like how it's like a mix between sort of biography and photo book and there's lots of tips and advice in there. And I was thinking not many photographers have the audience to receive, you know, this kind of book, I think. Are mm-hmm. you... Like, do you have an awareness of the sort of place that you hold in the photography community and that, you know, people look up to you and how does that sit with you? Well, I'm always, I've always been fond of the company of photographers. You know, I grew up shooting for newspapers and wire services. So at the end of the day, you know, you'd have the wet dark room, you know, and everybody would bring their film back and there'd be a lot of kibitzing and, you know, give each other grief and advice as a young photographer I was able to listen and learn so uh, the the photographic atmosphere if you will of you know a bunch of photographers together I've always appreciated and enjoyed Uh, so to be accepted by the photo community and uh, be an integral or or you know uh, a small part of it on some level you know and having having had a bit of an impact, I, I would admit, I guess, you know, uh, that uh, it feels good. It feels like there's a validity, you know, to the career path. Um, when I got into this, I, I wanted to, I wanted to do good work, 
and have the respect of my peers. And that seems to have worked out. Let's jump back in time, okay? I've been reading the book, as I said, and you're, you were studying writing at the beginning. Uh, but it, what was very, very clear to me is you were absolutely driven about photography. Um, so where did that come from? Do you remember, like, what was the starter for you with photography? Yes, absolutely. It was the writing curriculum that I was engaged in and the fact that it required me to take a photography class because I wasn't in creative writing or, uh, you know, the idea of becoming a novelist. I was in journalism school, storytelling, uh, newspapers, uh, magazines, etc. So a component of publication at that point in time, obviously was uh, photographs and the idea of working with a photographer as a writer. Uh, so part of the writing curriculum mandated, I take a, just a, a simple introductory course to photography. And as soon as I, I took that course, I, I knew I had to change paths. Not that I fell out of love with writing or anything like that, but I did fall in love completely and thoroughly with the idea of being in the world with a camera in my hands. It just felt natural. And it felt like, yeah, I, you know, I, I just, I don't know, call it intuition, beginner's luck, whatever you like to call it. It just, uh, when I had a, I had this old camera, it was my father's camera. He had used for all the vacation snaps. Uh, it was called a beauty light three. I still have it, you know, a rangefinder camera with a 42 millimeter lens. And as soon as I took that camera in hand, it felt natural. So I, I did my best to redirect at that point. You know, I still graduated in the writing sequence, but I stayed for two more years at Syracuse University. And I did a master's degree in photojournalism. And then I went from there to New York. So, yeah, so you moved to New York and you were really hungry to get into the, the photography and the newspaper business, I think. So um, just to skim through this, because I want to spend time talking about some of your assignments, but you, you got that job as a copy boy and worked up until you became a photographer. So you had some great mentors, I think, some of the names that you mentioned in the book there. Can you think back to that time and those early days anything that you learned that really stuck with you like all through until today that you, you really picked up on those early days with the papers? Sure. Uh, you know, New York is a, a good teacher, uh, can be a stern teacher. You learn lessons very quickly or you just don't stick, you know? So I was really blessed with, uh, you know, good mentors and, uh, fierce mentors you know, a wire service editor in New York City on deadline is not the most forgiving person in the world uh, if you screw up. But I, I learned that mistakes are part of the process. And I made a considerable number of them. They weren't fatal, thankfully, um, to my career. But, you know, uh, you know, Larry DeSantis, you know, at the UPI, I, I would say to him, you know, oh, I couldn't do this, or, you know, he wasn't happy with a take or something like that, and I'd be f fumbling about. And he just looked at me at one point, and he just said, this ain't the business for excuses, kid. So once you take a job, once you say yes, then it's incumbent on you to figure that job out, you know, with, with whatever uh, 
possibilities you could bring to the table, whatever expertise, whatever personality, uh, drive, energy, um, cleverness, you know, the, the gamut of possibilities because jobs are very situational. So they throw a different set of parameters or a different set of problems to solve at you all the time. So you can't be the same photographer tomorrow that you were today. Mm-hmm. You have to adapt. And that is also a, a good early lesson that I learned in New York. You know, uh, shooting for newspapers and wires was wonderful in the sense that it teaches you versatility and kind of a durability, you know, and you bounce from job to job. You can shoot, you know, three, four jobs in a day. Uh, so you go from the, you know, the local school board meeting to um, a feature of, uh, you know, uh, something, an event in Central Park to that night you're at Giant Stadium shooting a football game or whatever it might be. So it's a, it's a very wide range of topic matter that gets thrown at you in that realm of publication. And that is also valuable to develop a sense of versatility. So you did that for some time and then you had this opportunity with a TV station, which seemed like the way that I, I picked it up, like a short but significant chapter in your journey, maybe helped realize helped you realize what you didn't want to do. Um, what was it about that job that made you think, okay, this isn't for me? Well, it was, it was a fun job that did teach me a lot, but it was very limited in scope. Uh, the The mission was constantly revolving around ABC television, you know, that's who I was working for, and their world. So I had uh, to cover not just the aspects of a potential story uh, that, say, uh, the documentary division was going after or something like that, but I also had to learn how to shoot color and shoot the celebrities or the news anchors or the soap opera stars, all of which was wonderful, but you know, it's a, it's a, a short, you know, cycle, you know, you revisit the same themes all the time, or, you know, the television anchors don't change. So, you know, next year you're shooting the same set with the same anchor, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So I realized I wasn't going to last there over long, but I took what I could from the job in terms of lessons learned, how to, how to use flash, uh, how to shoot Kodachrome. And you know, transparency film. It, growing up on transparency film was that also was a good teacher because it's a very unforgiving medium, and so you learn about light and you learn about exposure and latitude and you know that how much wiggle room you had with a chrome transparency was minuscule compared to what you have now with digital. So. Mm-hmm a good school if you will to go to but i had to move on and so it you'd said there that you'd yearned for the world of magazines and the glossy pages was was it just a sort of a natural progression to go from newspapers to magazines or was it the scope of the work or what was it that was really pulling you that way well i did find while i was working for abc that um i did have a pretty decent color palette and I was interested in color. And newspapers back at that time were all black and white. 
and it took a while for color to start to be published in you know places like the new york times so i also realized i probably was never destined to be a very good newspaper photographer because uh, the news of the day ended up not being the motivating force that it needs to be if you're going to stick with newspapers. I found myself very comfortable living in the realm of my imagination and maybe thinking my way to a creative, hopefully creative solution to a story, um, to think about portraiture in a creative way and the use of color and light shadow and situation uh, going on location uh, as a magazine photographer started to really really resonate with me as the direction that i wanted to go so um you know to a degree sadly i left the notion of being a newspaper photographer behind is, is the difference then between magazines and newspapers is it sort of the control like i guess newspaper photography i haven't really done that it's more reactive to just what's happening, whereas with a newspaper, with a magazine, sorry, you might have more control or be more proactive. With that. Am I on the right track there? Yeah, sure, absolutely. I mean, the news of the day, it's, it's here and gone, you know. As we used to say, you know, the, the front page today is, is uh, <clears throat> you know, papering somebody's birdcage tomorrow. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, it's a very fast-paced environment. Whereas my first cover story, for instance, for National Geographic, uh, my contract was for 26 weeks in the field. And so that's half a year to develop a story. And then with the editing time, et cetera, it really took up the bulk of one year of my life. That's that one story. So it's a radically different way to approach storytelling. At the end of the day, you're still a storyteller. You're trying to get across either the news of the day or in the case of the geographic, they tackle, you know, obviously geography, physical and social geography, and ecology, uh, the earth, etc. So a little bit of a different mission, but at the end of the day, you're still trying to be an effective storyteller. Okay, let me segue then into talking about some of your assignments. I just thought it, it would be some learning here and I've got three lined up. I hope we have time to get into each of them. But mm -hmm. uh, if you don't mind, if we can talk about Panorama of War. Okay. This It seemed like it's a project about the aftermath of war. It, was it kind of your idea? Um, can you tell us a little bit about that project, the goal of it, and how it sort of came to be? Sure. Um, I mean, first off, just on the table right away, I'm not a conflict photographer. I never have mm -hmm. been. But at Life, we did touch on. Uh, I was I was a staff photographer at Life uh, for uh, a few years, and we did touch on subject matter like that. And my editor at the time, you know, he was reluctant to let me go to situations such are as are presented in that story, because he was very, you know, he's very dead bang honest with me. You know, he says, "Look, you know, I'm the picture editor of Life magazine." If I want to send somebody to a conflict zone, I have access to the best people in the world. You know, I've got access to Jimmy Nachtway and Christopher Morris. Why would I send you? You know, uh, you don't have that kind of experience. And he was right. But then I came back to him and I said, what if I 
introduced a certain level of photographic complexity, which I am good at, and shot it all of it on panorama. And he was kind of a showman type of a, you know, he, he could instantly come up with headlines, you know, that would quote unquote sell a story. He goes, that's it. That's what we could do. We could do a story called the panorama of war. And, and that was the hook. So I, I pulled myself together two six by 17 panorama cameras and headed off to places like Somalia and Afghanistan and Chechnya, Rwanda. And, uh, you know, just tried to come up with the sensibility of what was an aftermath for these places of ter the terrible consequences of conflict and the, the scars that are left behind and the ongoing danger that's left behind the, you know, um, unexploded landmines, et cetera, that are left behind, uh, you know, the lack of, of facilities, you know, because the infrastructure has been destroyed hospitals, electricity, all that, that we associate, you know, just with, you know, waking up in the morning, you know, it's normal, right? We flip the switch and the lights come on. All that is in, in many of these places is just gone. So that was the, the drift or the intent of that story. Mm -hmm. So did you feel like, you know, maybe war was being covered, but this aspect, the aftermath, just it was a story that wasn't being told? Well, we we hoped by virtue of shooting it in wide format, basically, you know, um, using the panorama camera, we hoped we could bring a bit of a twist to it, um, that type of coverage. Uh, you know, there's amazing, um, courageous, just stellar photograph photographic talent, you know, being brought to bear on conflict always has been uh, tremendously um, savvy photographers who, you know, are uh, put, that they risk everything to do that. So mm -hmm. being a monthly magazine, we couldn't compete in a Newsweekly sense. You know, Time and Newsweek came out every week. And so they could be much more nimble. So how could we present something like this as a story that still had validity, even though we weren't a deadline-oriented publication? And again, we kind of came around to the idea of the panorama being a significant or potential way of presenting it in an interesting fashion. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so you're kind of, yeah, you're not a conflict photographer, as you said. I understand you went in with without much of a fixed plan and just kind of picked things up along the way. So how do you deal with that sort of logistically on the ground to just find an end to get started with a location? Yeah. Uh, you know, the idea of using, a, using fixers in uh, locations, it becomes very powerful, not only in this kind of story, which was, uh, a, you know, as I say, you know, the aftermath of conflict, but also uh, shooting, you know, quote unquote, normal stories for National Geographic. A fixer can play an absolutely crucial ro role for you. You walk in, you don't speak the language, you know, um, and you are unfamiliar with the turf. At Geographic, you try to familiarize yourself as much as you possibly can, for instance, by doing research. Mm -hmm. But with something like the Panorama of War, this is pre-internet when I shot that. So mm -hmm. it wasn't like I could 
dial up a photograph of Kigali or, you know, I would have to, it was really old school, no cell phones, et cetera, shooting film. So in those kinds of situations where the infrastructure has been, you know, to a degree obliterated, you just have to go there and mm-hmm. figure it out. And one of the first most important things you can do is liaison with a good fixer who's familiar with the situation on the ground, uh, knows perhaps the authorities, knows who to bribe, um, you know, has command of the language, has, uh, knows trustworthy drivers uh, that can get you around, those kinds of things. Some of the, uh, well, all of the photographs on the, on the gallery for this on your website, incredibly powerful um, and challenging. I always admire photojournalists, documentary photographers who can widen their lens and step forward. My nature is to zoom out and step back. I want to stay out of the danger zone, really. But, you know, if I'm looking at this picture, which is it just features a lot of skulls on, on a table and it's just I, I don't know how can you tell us a little bit about what that is yeah that that was a makeshift memorial set up at a place called the church at Antarama where literally hundreds of people were slain hand to hand they had sought refuge in the church and marauders came into the church and killed many of them uh, a lot of them hand to hand you can see in the skulls there's you know, slices in the skulls from machetes, etc. So that was set outside the church. And, you know, I had to had to shoot it. This was a, a powerful emotional statement that had been created. I shot it on a panorama camera, which meant I, I had to uh, be have a distance from the table because of the minimum focus distance of those cameras, etc. So the hard part for me, emotionally difficult, was what you don't see in the photograph directly behind my back were large racks, literally, or a storage area for the um, corpses that were associated with those skulls. And they were just, you know, human bones and dangling flesh and clothes. And I had to kind of press myself back into that, you know, which mm-hmm. was hard, you know. Um, but the picture was important for the story. And uh, I influenced the picture. I'm always honest about uh, what I do. These young boys were watching me from a kind of a doorway. It was a makeshift, as I say, kind of enclosure. And I asked them to go around behind. You can see in the back of the picture, they're staring at me through plastic. And I thought mm-hmm. the plastic sort of turned them um, a little bit ghostly, you know, mm-hmm. and it felt it added a dimension to the photograph because the future generations, the scars of this genocide will be borne by those future generations of young people as they become adults. I just wondered for you, knowing that you were putting yourself into such difficult positions, um, what once you you know it could be nerve wracking and everything I'm sure, but once you get in there and you get your camera in your hand, for those kind of positions where you don't have much control over what's in front of you, do you go back to that newspaper experience to shoot in a reactive kind of storytelling way, or like is is it kind of okay in a way once the camera's in your hand? Do you know what I mean? Uh, 
Sure. Yeah. I, I mean, the uh, you do bear down. You know, you realize you're there for a reason. You have to do a story, and it's your responsibility. So once you get the camera in hand, yes, in my head, and I'm sure the heads of you know many or all photographers, you know, it's like okay, let's get going here. You you have a job to do, and certainly some of that story shooting a tripod mounted panorama camera were things that were uh, static, you know, that, or maybe a street scene that I would just set up and wait for a combination of elements to come through the panorama frame or something along those lines. But I did shoot a lot of 35 millimeter in that, in that, uh, on that job as well. And that was more, if you will, photojournalistic in the sense of reacting to what I was seeing and moving quickly with the, the, uh, uh, you know, the events as they transpired in front of my, my lens. It's, I hope people can go and check that project out. I found it on your website and in the book as well. It's very, very powerful. Um, let's move on to another, um, aspect. I wanted to ask you about some of the downs of working in this business because, um, you know, I'm a working photographer, and uh, let me quote something from the book, okay? Um, you are an unfillable pit of yearning, anxiety, and self-doubt. You sleep with the job, shower with it, like an especially tough piece of jerky you chew relentlessly on the damn thing. You're not just shooting it, you're conceptualizing it, designing it in your head, running the camera, directing the lighting, selecting the talent. An assignment is like a big wet dog laying on your chest in the middle of the night, panting in your face with bad breath. I felt so validated when I read this because <laughs> that's like, that's just me. Um, and I was showing my wife, I was going, it's not just me. It's not just me. Do you still kind of carry that sort of sense of dread before an assignment? Um, and how do you sort of deal with that? Sure. Yeah, you're always anxious about it. You, you have to be because um, the creative process is, is messy. You know, it's not, a, and it's not an assembly line. You don't, when you engage in a job, you don't know what you're going to get at the end of it. That's really unknowable. So uh, you have to uh, be comfortable with uncertainty. You have to revel in the unpredictable nature of human interaction or storytelling or location work and literally pivot, you know, sometimes at the last minute in different directions. And all of that has to be part of your uh, wheelhouse as a photographer. And it can be very anxiety producing, you know, especially if a job is stretching out over the course of, say, I don't know, eight to 10 days, you know, you have in the field and you come out of the field sometimes and you know you haven't done well. Uh, there were times for the geographic, I know I would work very hard during the course of a day and come back to my hotel room with, you know, 30 rolls of Kodachrome in a plastic bag. And I know, I knew right that minute that I could walk over to my garbage can and just mm -hmm. drop the entire bag of film in the garbage can because there wasn't a picture worth a damn in, mm -hmm. in that grouping. And those are tough days. And then that makes for kind of a sleepless night. You know, how, how am I going to recoup? How am I going to recover? I have to hope for a better day tomorrow. You know, those kinds of things uh, are always with you. I, I don't know, Lord, I, I don't think I know a single photographer who is just utterly blasé about things, you know, uh, you can't be. 
Okay, let's talk about one where the dread was well placed, okay? 1988, this is in your book, Sports Illustrated asked you to shoot the biggest guys in the NFL. Um, and it just mm. didn't work out for you. So I don't, I don't mean to knock you. I'm just interested in that process of uh, being difficult and bouncing back. So can you talk a little bit about that project? Sure. Uh, on the face of it, it sounds like a marvelous job, and it should have been. <sighs> should I have handled it better? Um, I just, I don't know. You know, it, I, I look back at that job and. And my editor didn't like it, and the magazine didn't run it, and I, uh, you know, upset the apple cart out there in the field, you know, inconvenienced people. I brought them to places, you know, I interrupted players, uh, you know, workout schedules and all of that, and it was all kind of for naught, you know, um, and uh, you know. I just didn't turn the corner. I had some imagination about it and all of that, but I did find during the course of that that it's really hard to show kind of how big something is relative to what, you know. Uh, mm -hmm. So these guys were very large humans. So <laughs> how exactly did it, do you show that? And I tried any number of instances, you know, to have some fun with it and make it somewhat humorous. I brought the front line, I think it was of the Indianapolis Colts at that time to a meat storage locker. And I photographed them with sides of beef, you know, hanging there. I was like, mm -hmm. ah, that didn't really work. Um, I brought a couple of really big guys out to a truck weighing station out on the highway. That didn't really work. Um, you know, uh, if I had to shoot it all over again, I think I'd still be like wondering, <laughs> what am I going to do with this? You know, so, uh, you occasionally get jobs like that. I mean, again, I don't know a single photographer who can lay claim to a spotless record of always delivering excellent work and having everything work out. It's just not like that. I was uh, talking to Jim Richardson and he was saying like he used to like to pitch the stories himself because then he knew that there would be pictures in them. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, so I was wondering if if it was that, if it was there just weren't pictures to be had there or, or what do you think it was that just kept them out of your grasp? Um, well, partially, you know, you're, you're trying to fit into the training schedule of a major professional football team as they're at, you know, their, their summer camp preparing for the season. So these guys are timelined like crazy, you know, they have the morning workout, the afternoon workout, they have to study film, they have to study the playbooks. It's, it's a big deal. You know, people, you know, football, American style football is not just a bunch of big guys knocking into each other. There's mm -hmm. a lot of intricacy to the way the game is approached. So, um, so you're trying to, you know, find an hour of their time or, or something like that and segue into their lives in um, somewhat inconvenient fashion, <laughs> to be sure, and pull them into a scenario where you can actually show how big they are. I mean, truth mm -hmm. be told, some of the pictures were decent, but they never really cohered as a group and never became kind of the stellar kind of photo act that Sports Illustrated hoped for out of that particular mm -hmm. story.
Mm. I think it's just it's what we all dread, you know, going into a project because if you mess up, you've wasted everyone's time and you've trashed your own reputation. Uh, so yes. yeah, I'm really interested in how how that landed on you and if how if it damaged your career and how you kind of bounced back from that. Yeah, I mean, I I did. Um, it did me some damage to be sure. I mean, uh, you know, I was. I had a good reputation as Sports Illustrated for really delivering, you know, uh, good work. I had a contract, et cetera. And that was kind of a ding. It was like, hey, wait a minute, what, you know, what's wrong with him? Um, we gave him a good story and he, he, he didn't pull through. And that's never um, a good place to be, especially if it is at that point. For me, it was, you know, one of my truly major clients, you know, and you don't want to disappoint because it has ramifications, not only in terms of your reputation, but has ramifications financially as well. They stop using you or back off a bit in terms of assigning you. So yeah, it, it, it does, um, it does ding you. It hurts personally. It hurts, hurts you in the ego, hurts you in the pocketbook. Uh, all of that goes on. But you do have you do bounce back because I've always you know adhered to the notion or the philosophy that you know one door closes another one opens. So if you fail at one job, you'll do well at another, and there are hopefully more jobs in the pipe coming your way that you can kind of reprove yourself, if you will. So yeah, that was a that was a bump in the road for sure. That particular story. Okay, okay, let's go for something more fun. 1996. Um, I was, with this one, I wanted to really bounce back for you and give you a winner to talk about. So I was either going to go with this way or with the, um, with the Olympic team, but I think we'll go with the, with the Russian ballet dancers, mm-hmm. um, in Moscow. So yeah, can you just frame that one for us? Sure. Um, the notion for doing the Bolshoi ballet, uh, first got spooled up in my in my head in a bomb shelter in in uh, uh, downtown Grozny in Chechnya where we were waiting out uh, with my Russian interpreter we were waiting underground at our fixer's house for some of the uh, helicopter Russian gunships were over the city we were waiting for a certain level of of uh, activity to abate and I mentioned to him that I always love shooting dance you know we're just shooting the breeze and he said oh I have a a close friend who's a who's a prima ballerina with the Bolshoi I'm like wow you know that would be really cool do you think you could get me in he goes you know as oh yes no problem (laughs) you know um and uh, so I suggested it to my editors it was a little bit of a tough sell it's like, why are we interested in a Russian-based ballet company? Um, but I, I promised them I wouldn't spend too much money, which is music to an editor's ears. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I flew over to, to Moscow on my frequent flyer points. I didn't build the magazine before. I stayed in my fixer's tenement apartment, so I didn't bill uh, anyone 
any hotel fees. And uh, we set about trying to do a story on the bullshit. And it, it uh, I mean, you noted it as being a worthwhile story. It did work out. It was uh, fraught with difficulty. You know, mm-hmm. nothing in, in Russia happens uh, easily, I guess you could say. Uh, it's attended to by a lot of, um, uh, how to say this, I mean, corruption, I guess there's no other way to put it. Bribery, um, you know, uh, double dealing, you know, it's a, it's not an easy thing to drill through. Like mm-hmm. I met the, or the overall administration or logistics director of the Bolshoi and sat down to talk to him about potentially photographing the dancers. And he just casually asked me for a thousand dollars, you know, and make this happen. Yeah. I have a thousand dollars. And I said, well, no, you know, I haven't got a thousand dollars cash in my hands here. Um, and that, you know, the, and then the battle was joined. Thankfully, Eager, who was my fixer, had a good relationship, as he said, with uh, Nadia Grachova, who was a preeminent dancer. And so we were able to reach out to her personally. And apart from the company, we photographed her. And then we took that film and we found the only E6 lab in Moscow that was good. And we ran the film and then we had prints made for her. And we delivered the prints, and then she started to show the prints to her uh, fellow dancers. And then the dancers started calling us, saying, I, I'd like to be photographed like this. I'd like to try this. I, okay. And so without, we kind of did an end run around the administration of the Bolshoi in certain ways. Mm-hmm. So that was uh, a strategy that, that proved to be worthwhile. Mm-hmm. And so when you working with subject matter like that amazing dancers i can imagine so accessing the dancers was the hard part i can imagine shooting them maybe was a lot easier yes we were able to uh access certain um uh aspects of moscow see i i I used the dancers and russian life was tremendously in flux at the time this was in the Mm -hmm. in the 90s mid 90 ish latish 90s somewhere in there and uh, an awful lot was going on. Uh, it, the Russian society was changing. It had been opened up by Gorbachev um, and Western ideas and capitalism and influences that had been previously uh, shunted aside or kept outside of Russian uh, borders were now thriving, you know, in in mainstream Russian life. So. Um, I was able to go to places and locations and do transactions, financial transactions. You know, can I get into the Sanduni Bass? You know, we paid them a fee. Uh, in years gone by, that might have been terribly difficult and we would have had to go through the government, you know. So those kinds of things were being loosened up. Though when I photographed Nadia, the lead picture to the story, she's on the roof of the Goom department store overlooking Red Square. And the first mm-hmm. time we went up there, we had all of our permissions and everything. We got pulled off by um, security. And they argued okay. that the Kremlin, which you can see in the very far distance of the photograph, they argued that I could have a telephoto lens and be 
trying to photograph documents <laughs> through <Yeah>. the Kremlin <laughs> windows. And I was like, you know, fellas, you know, Nikon lenses are good. They're not that good, you know, because yeah. like, that those windows are about a mile away. You know, and I'm shooting a wide angle lens of a dancer. Uh, so thankfully, again, you know, Russian society, you, you go uh, to, you know, uh, where influence can be brought to bear. So thankfully, the dancer's husband was a very prominent uh, Moscow doctor. And so he went to work with his you know, contacts. And then I assigned a second fixer. And she was strong with certain areas of, uh, you know, permitting and whatnot. And so we managed through, uh, I just looked at Igor and I said, I'm not leaving Russia without this photograph. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we got her back up there and we shot it. Um, that must have just been a great experience. How long were you in Russia to shoot that? Um, I actually bumped up against a couple of stories. I did, uh, you know, I been in Russia for, well, I'd been in, in Chechnya and then came back up and I was transiting back and forth to Russia a great deal at this point in time for whatever reason. And, um, I had, I did the Bolshoi story and then I did another story on uh, star city where American astronauts and Russian cosmonauts were training to go to space. So I would say during this particular, um, time, I probably spent three weeks in Russia. And so did that land well with the magazine then? Like what, what's, what's, I know like what the outlook of National Geographic is, but not so much on life, I think it was for that. They were happy enough with that? Yes, they were thrilled with the pictures. They were kind of nonplussed about running a story about, um, you know, Russian dancers, you know, it's like, you know. But the fact that I tried to show slices of Moscow life, which, I mean, um, the turmoil in the Eastern Bloc, this was story, let's see, the, the, the Berlin Wall had come down and, um, you know, all of that kind of um, chaos and opening up, if you will, of the East, former Eastern Soviet Bloc mm-hmm. of countries was very much in the news. Let's put it that way. You know, and so, uh, so we were able to kind of hang this on a slight news hook of all mm-hmm. the change in Moscow. And that, just to go back to what we were talking about before, this was one that maybe really worked out for you. What does that do for you in terms of your validating your own feelings of, you know, confidence about your ideas, your photography, how you can get things done? Does, and, and does that last or is it only until the dread sets in again for the next job? Well, yeah, I mean, there is that old mantra, you know, is what have you done for me lately? You know, coming mm-hmm. from a picture editor, you're only as good as your last job. Uh, and uh, but this story was judged to be a success for sure. And, you know, as odd as I guess the magazine thought it was, perhaps, or certain people at the magazine thought it was, uh, it was pictorially very successful. So Mm -hmm. they were happy to run it. And yeah, I mean, something like this, when you propose something and then you come back with the photographs and they are, uh, you know, turn out to be, you know, worthwhile, it validates your sense of editorial judgment. So it might be easier than next time 
mm-hmm. to get an idea across. So okay, so yeah, that's some you, currency. You, yeah, you can't. Yeah, currency is a good way to put it. You know, you can't go there and fail, and then expect the same kind of welcoming audience for your ideas. Let's take a minute to talk about gear. I know you're a Nikon ambassador, so instead of doing a deep dive into your bag, what's your sort of camera of the moment, and what's the one lens that you you reach for? And as soon as, as your hand is going there, you already know this is my favorite lens. I love this one. Mm. Okay, yeah, sure. Um, the camera for me of record right now is the Z9, or, or as they say in the United Kingdom, Z9. You know, mm-hmm. and uh, <laughs> I use any any lens that I have to. But I guess if if you had to label a quote unquote most useful lens or or something that always goes with me, it would have to be the twenty four seventy f two point eight. It's very durable. It's very sharp, and it's uh, just an incredibly handy set of millimeters that mm-hmm. that lens covers um i was interested about your relationship with nikon i was wondering like do you have any say like in the development of things do they bounce anything off you or is it do they just bring you in to do this sort of campaign photographs yes sure that's that's uh, a powerful thing about the two-way street of being a nikon ambassador is that we'll have these nikon ambassador meets you know they'll bring us in and they'll consult us you know they'll what 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 do we dream of for the next camera? Mm-hmm. They don't, you know, divulge to us what they're working on or anything like that. That's very uh, tightly held uh, confidential information. Uh, and so there is a, um, a, a, as an icon ambassador, I find that the company has uh, an attentive ear if you bring something up mm-hmm. and say, this is not happening well, or this could be better or I'd really love to see XYZ okay usually at this point I do a round called double exposure Uh, we're a bit pressed for time so let me just ask you about one more thing I don't think I can let you go without asking about faces of ground zero you okay to talk about that Mm -hmm. yeah this is a series of portraits you made shortly after 9-11 with firefighters and other people associated with 9-11 using a giant life-size Polaroid camera. If it was me, and this is me taking my step back again, I would have thought, you know, it's important, it's a good idea to photograph these people, but I'll be putting them out, they might not want to do it, they obviously have other things on their mind and so on. What was it in you that gave you the go-ahead to say, no, I need to approach these people and run with this project? Yeah, um, I think everyone at that point in time, I mean, it was a very emotional time, I think, globally, really, and particularly in the United States, and very intense, obviously, in New York. And so what the 9-11 project was about was photographing people's people whose lives had intersected with 9-11 and those events in a very dramatic fashion and also incredibly devastating fashion in the case of people who lost loved ones, et cetera. So I I did find that uh, approaching that project 
repeatedly or consistently, people would step up, even though they had just suffered a grievous loss of a husband, a brother, uh, you know, uh, et cetera, that uh, people wanted to, to tell their story. People wanted okay. to convey the importance of their experience in the midst of this terrible tragedy and talk about the uniqueness of what they had specifically gone through as part of this larger mosaic of, of pain and destruction, but also involved in that mosaic was a tremendous amount of courage and nobility and a selflessness and sacrifice and the willingness of people to step up and help their fellow human beings. So uh, the Ground Zero Project hopefully reflected that. And uh, that was, I don't think we really had anyone we approached flat out turn us down. Okay. And it was a, it was an effort they had to make because the camera was not movable. The camera was physically part of a studio because it was so big. So we couldn't mm -hmm. bring it to them. They had to come to us. So they really had to make an effort to leave their homes uh, in this very stressful, emotional time and make their way down to this photographic studio. Mm -hmm. But yeah, and so there was an understanding on their part as well okay I, we need to tell this story that's really good to hear the lead image that i always see it's with i'm, I'm going to try to say the name please please correct me is louis caccioli yeah um, that's good yeah louis and louis caccioli he really embodies actually what you said the pain courage nobility all those things but do you think um it was something about the camera being it's such a unique camera that was it just was the right tool for the, the sort of scope of that job do you think yeah i i again um as a photographer and this is just a necessity it sounds facile you know but it's a necessity when you look at a project like um or a potential or an idea what about this idea uh renders it valid and and different because obviously there were dozens hundreds of photographers who went down to lower manhattan on that day and in the ensuing days and they did a marvelous job uh, in incredibly difficult conditions to bring home the story of that tremendous destruction of human life and and also this iconic these iconic buildings that you know that was the heart and soul or symbol of new york it's like the heart of the city had been torn out mm -hmm. and and so there are photographers down there doing that already so i was not one of them uh, i thought to myself okay how can i make a contribution first of all uh, because the project did raise or help raise a package of relief funding that was about two million dollars so mm -hmm how can I make a contribution? How can I shoot any sort of photograph that could be deemed valid or worthwhile in this situation? And the camera became part of that thinking because the camera, a totally unique instrument, only one of a kind in the world makes a life-size photograph. That's, it was, it was occasionally referred to as the 40 by 80 camera because mm -hmm. the, uh, the paper, if you will, 
that the Polaroid you know, would be printed on instantaneously, 90 seconds after the exposure, just like a regular Polaroid, except it was 40 inches by 80 inches. It was a life-size image. If someone was six feet tall in real life on the photograph, they're also six feet tall. Okay. So um, that uh, gave it a, a, a level of photographic difference. And then it also, I think, was a pr an appropriate instrument just in terms of the dignity uh, uh, and the stature of the people who were first responders, cops, firefighters, etc. cetera. Uh, there, there's a nobility to it that I think harks back to old time portraiture because the camera itself is, is a combination of uh, modern technology, but also age old, uh, you know, portraiture approaches. Uh, the subject had a stand, I had to work camera obscura, for instance, there was no shutter in the lens. So we had to black out the studio and spool the camera up. So the subject had to stay there by themselves in the dark for about 30 seconds and hold steady. And then I would pull a cap off of the lens and I'd, you know, I'd flash, you know, the strobe system. So there was a pace to it that uh, spoke to a certain level of calm and composure and dignity in front of the lens. Because I would say 90% of the subjects who came down, I only shot one frame. Mm -hmm. That was it. Because mm -hmm. every exposure you made, was $350. Yeah. <laughs> you should have done a group shot. Um, yeah. uh, so, but obviously very significant work and um, I have, have a sense these will be around for a couple of hundred years. I don't know. People will be looking back on these images as important artifacts from, from that time. How does that land on you? Well, it's, uh, you know, I was very proud of our tiny little studio and the fact that we stepped up and, and did make some effort to contribute. Uh, and we did so at a very fraught time for my studio. We were broke. You know, there was no real work around. I didn't take any fees to shoot the Ground Zero project. We took all the money that Time Warner gave us and we funneled it to the camera because the camera is such a beast, you know. And so... Yeah, at the end of the day, you know, I have a long relationship with the with the 9-11 Museum. My wife and my name are uh, carved into the contributors area on the walls of the museum. Mm -hmm. So long after I'm gone, those pictures will be there and Annie's and my name will be together on the wall, which, you know, has a has a measure of emotional satisfaction for for us. Okay, this has been great, Joe. I'm sorry, I feel like I've made you work so hard this morning. And, uh, no usually apologies probably, necessary. It might be a bit more conversational normally, but I really wanted to get some value out of you. So um, are you okay for a quick fire round to finish, just for fun? Sure, sure. Okay, this, I call it round motor drive, but it's my lack of imagination, really. So, okay, wide angle or telephoto? Depends on the situation. <laughs> okay, maybe the same answer coming up then. Color or black and white? Again, you know, it's situational, though I do have a, a predilection for color. Expensive lens cloth or the corner of your shirt? 
it's traditionally, uh, even though I know an expensive lens cloth is advisable, it's traditionally been the corner of my shirt. I know. I, I, I'm the same. I have a cloth in my pocket all the time, but the shirt's just there. So, okay, what's a weird thing I could find in your camera bag or in your kit? Something weird. Something weird. Hmm. Um, I'm just kind of rummaging through my head and my camera bag as we speak, yeah. think, trying to think of something weird. Um, personal, yes. I mean, when I go on location, uh, I, I always have a cuff you know, given to me by my wife. Uh, it's the very first thing she ever gave me was a cuff, you know, for my wrist. And she's updated mm-hmm. it over the years. And so a cuff always is with me in the field because uh, even though I'm alone or, you know, I'm away from home, I always, uh, you know, uh, look at the cuff and realize she's always with me. Yeah, that's a really lovely answer. Thank you. Um, okay, name one photographer we should all know about. Oof, quite an array. Uh, you could say Jay Maisel and his and his archive, his oeuvre, um, to be sure. It depends on what you're passionate about and what what kind of uh, uh, photography motivates you or inspires you. For me, I have a big photo library. So when I want to just kind of feel clean again and remind myself of why I'm doing this, I'll go back to a book called The Creation by Ernst Haas. Okay. Which is a very powerful book. Okay, cool. I'll put a link in the show notes. Um, usually I ask people about local music, but in the book, uh, you mentioned the average white band. and um, Scottish. I had no idea. Yeah. And, um, they don't sound Scottish. It's amazing. No, they don't. They do not. You have, you have to kind of know that. It's it's funny. Yeah, and then they're they're actually from Dundee, which is like the least funky place. Very strange. So that's the music round covered. Okay, last one. When do you feel at peace with the universe? When I'm sitting on the couch at home with Annie. The couch is our life preserver. You know, we eat dinner in our living space. We sit on the couch together and we know that we sit there, we have a bite to eat and we're together and getting to that sofa um, signifies a great deal to us. It's the end of the day. We made it through another day, you know, or another week of freelance photography, which can be very rocky endeavor. Mm-hmm. And it, it's, uh, it's peaceful. It's, it's, you know, it's the most important place for the two of us. Cool. Well, I hope you make it there today. Joe, I'm so grateful for this time. Thanks so much. All right. No worries. Thank you, Graham. Thank you so much for listening. Go to joemcnally.com to see all the projects we spoke about and check out Joe's latest book, The Real Deal. Links are in the show notes. If you're new to the show today, a special thanks to you. Go check out my conversations with George Steinmetz, Christina Mittermeier, Jim Richardson. I think you're going to enjoy those. You can find them all on the Viewfinders website or on your favourite podcast platform. That's all for now. Take care, enjoy your photography and I'll see you out there.